Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Hello and welcome to Second Captain's Football at the Irish Times. It's uh, Murph here, that's me, and Ken is also here, that's you, Ken. That's me, uh, Kieran. good to talk to you today. And uh, the curtain has come down on another Premier League season. The greatest season in the history of football anywhere, apart from Spain. Right now, <laughs> happening concurrently. Yeah. Uh, so it's done now, Ken. It's a wrap. It's, uh, it's in the can. But when the Hollywood remake of this season comes to be made, what moment do you think is going to be the key point of the narrative? Well, the Hollywood scriptwriter will want I mean, it boiled I, down to its... You know, I think it's, we, all, we all probably thought of the same moment. Mm. Um, you know... But, See, the Stephen Gerrard step against yeah, Chelsea, but you know, right, if, but, if I'm a Hollywood, if I'm a Hollywood screenwriter or a Hollywood producer, more to the point, okay, the money man. I don't want that to be the pivotal moment. I don't want the season needs to be rewritten so that there's a happy ending. So well, for it, Man I mean, City, there is a there is a happy ending. There's a happy ending for Manchester City. There's a happy ending. There's there's sort of a bittersweet ending for Tim Sherwood, mm. who called it by the way. Tim Sherwood called this on January 28th. You know all this stuff about oh Chelsea, you know are, are in the Arsenal in the driving seat. Chelsea, Liverpool's charge. Mm. Tim Sherwood called this January twenty eighth. They're the best team on the planet. Certainly the best team in the Premier League. We've played the champions today," said Tim Sherwood, having just been paced at five one by Manchester City at home. He's a football man. He's a football man. He saw it. He saw it was going to happen. But look, if I'm Iowa Jesus, I don't want this, this tragedy. Mm. Uh, and this and an accident. I don't want the whole thing to turn on this Deus Ex Machina. This this you know Stephen Gerrard's studs slipping through the yeah the grass. Uh, that's not it's not satisfying to an no. Audience. It doesn't mean anything. Mm. All it means is it's just it's just reinforcing the utter meaninglessness not only of this game, this championship, but of our lives here on Earth. You know, I mean, if that if that can happen at such a moment, if such a, uh, an important, uh, you know, if, if the entire story can turn on that on that moment, then something is wrong. It's, it doesn't make any dramatic sense. What's it, what's it telling you? Okay, it does make a certain dramatic sense, as Jonathan Wilson mentioned last week, uh, given that Jared had foreshadowed what happened by Same. using the That's word awesome. slip. Yeah. You know, using the word slip. But then for it to actually happen, it's just, uh, you know, it, ju- it just shows that, that essentially this is all random. None of it means anything. And uh, and well, that's it. And is that a message that I want to take home? Having shelled out my seventeen bucks or whatever it costs to go and watch the cinema in America these days. Yeah, yeah I, I actually, you know, for once, Ken, I do actually kind of agree with you because you know you want the compelling narrative. You know, say you know, many I'd had the chance last year to win the league. In, it was obviously it was patently a pretty poor Manchester United side that Robin van Persie elevated to league champions last season, and they had the chance to in April to beat City at home and to say, right, okay, 
this wraps it all we're up the best. In, in a neat little bundle. We're the best team in the country, so we win the league, and we're all happy with that. Yeah. City go and beat them 2-1. Yeah. Could have been more. City just looked a way, way better team than many out of that <laughs> I night. remember, yeah. And all of a sudden, it kind of threw the whole season into... Like, what are we even watching here? You know, how did City manage to lose this league to this terrible Man United team? Yeah. Uh, and this year as well, City had the chance to to put a bit of order on the season, effectively, mm. to go and beat Liverpool at Anfield and say, right, Liverpool, you've had your you've had your go. You had a good run there, ten wins in a row, or whatever. It's nine wins at that time, uh, but it stops here. We're the best team in the league. There you Deal go. With it. And it this season for how uh, brilliant and all as it was. It did kind of lack that the the moment from City, from City's point of view where you're watching and saying right well they are the best team and all the rest but they kind of nearly you know they just bottled it less seriously than Chelsea. Well, and there Liverpool. were Is some big unfair? there were some big moments. I mean they beat Liverpool obviously in that game at home. Um, St Stephen's just, yeah, wasn't exactly it? Yeah. and uh, maybe they got Brendan Rodgers certainly re- referred to it only in the last couple of days again that they, he felt they got lucky with an offside decision although it has to be remembered I mean he, he made the point that there was an offside decision given against Raheem Sterling um, and if that's if that um, if that's given or if, if, if it's not mm. erroneously given against Liverpool then you know they're probably going to score but the thing is they did then score I think a couple of minutes after that with uh, when Sterling went through again sort of not, not dissimilar it was again put through and Coutinho scored and Liverpool went from that position being 1-0 up to 2-1 down by half time so I don't know if you can really see it as you know yeah. as, as necessarily a crunch uh, or, or a, uh, a decisive injustice against Liverpool that particular decision Also in December it, you know there is there was, time there, was, there, was a, there was a long time left. I mean, they have had a, a lot of really good, a lot of really emphatic performances. I mean, you don't score 102 goals in the league without thrashing a lot of teams. And when they've been in the... I mean, as Sherwood said, I mean, Mourinho, I think, was slagging Sherwood off after that, saying, well, maybe if we're talking to manager, the planet is England. Um, but, you know, Sherwood had seen this team come and completely annihilate his side, which at the time wasn't doing too badly. You know, and they'd, they'd been to Old Trafford a couple of weeks before that and mm. like a few teams this season. You know, but they, 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 they've been doing okay and then just get completely annihilated and played off the park. And City have done that a few times this season. The problem that they have is the problem that they're always going to have, which is everybody looking at them going, well, of course. Well, obviously you should be winning 5-0. Anyway, let's get into your... As Brendan, Brendan Rodgers again, um, he said, after the Manchester City game on April 13th, we were under pressure for 20 minutes against City. But when you have the biggest wage bill in sport, you have to perform well at some stage. So I think Rogers is speaking for a lot of people there in terms of, well, of course, of course they won the league because look at all the money they're earning. That's why UEFA are punishing them now. Punishing them with not the harshest punishment I've ever seen, you know, in terms of finding the money, which they've obviously got loads of, and uh, telling them that they won't be allowed to pick all of their players for European competition. But, of course, that doesn't really affect what happens in the... Premier League, who still have no rules against this kind of thing. Mm. Uh, trying to get into your report on sport, Ken, I feel. So we've seen a couple of squad announcements in the last few days. Mm. Uh, England's just the in the news last agenda moves on, few Ken. minutes. There's a World Cup. But we, well, we'll get, we'll return, we'll return boomerang like to the Premier League talk. But uh, England's squad has been announced, and uh, well, I don't know if there are too many surprises. If you consider, well, it's leaking like a sieve. So yeah, the, the friends that weren't Ashley Cole being left out was the was the big one, I suppose. Um, and I was a bit surprised by that from Roy Hodgson. I mean, okay, ultimately it's a decision over your reserve left back. It's not necessarily the biggest call in the in the twenty three, mm. um, but I'm just a little bit surprised that he left he leaves out a player with 107 caps even if he hasn't played as much for Chelsea. Just given the kind of manager that Hodgson is. You know, he's a, he's a guy who's, you know, almost Italianate in his regard for experience. Mm. Uh, and he's gone and said for Luke Shaw, who's 18. If, uh, if you were to make a ballsy call, you mm. know, try and rally the, rally the country behind you, say that you're a man of substance to man, not afraid to make the big calls, yeah. making that, that sort of a call over your reserve left back... Maybe he might see it as a maybe it's the sh- cheapest way of doing it. Yeah, shot to nothing there. Yeah, I mean the squad: Forster, Foster, and Hart. The goalkeepers: Baines, Kale, Jagielka, Johnson, Jones, Jones, who's evidently going to be fit. Luke Shaw, Chris Smalling, 
uh, yeah, not, not too many surprises there. And not, I would have to say, a great deal of quality either. No. Um, seven. A lot of good old-fashioned English blood and guts, though. Well, Gary good... Cahill, Phil Jones, uh, Jagielka. Yeah. We want to meet those guys down there. Derek and Nelly Ken. Well, I think they all seem like very nice men. Well, yeah, I mean, Jag- Jagielka, Jones and Cahill, they all seem like lovely lads. Yeah, but I mean, if there's a... They don't seem mean. None of these guys. None of these guys are mean. These English players. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being a bit harsh. I mean, some of them have good qualities, but I don't think, uh, I don't think we're looking at the members of a World Cup winning defence here. Um, the midfielders: Ross Barkley gets in, um, Stephen Gerrard, Jordan Henderson, Adam Lallana, um, Frank Lampard, James Milner, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Raheem Sterling, and Jack Wilshere. So plenty of midfield players. Uh, Ricky Lambert, Wayne Rooney, Daniel Sturgeon, Daniel Welbeck are the strikers, which mean that the, the uh, and on standby, and I suppose these are the guys who can maybe consider themselves a bit unlucky, John Ruddy, John Flanagan, John Stones, none of whom I don't think would have been really expecting. Michael Carrick, who knew he wasn't going to go, mm. even though he probably, des- well, did he deserve to, on the basis of this season? He probably deserved to in every season up till this. Yeah. And never did. So... It's not as though he was... Although maybe it would have made a perverse kind of sense if he'd finally got in this season that he he actually didn't deserve to. Tom Cleverley uh, is on standby as well. Andy Carroll has... They've decided they don't need that particular plan B. And Jermaine Defoe. Um, so, yeah, that's England's squad for the Cup. Ireland also announced the squad. Now, this was, of course, at the tail end of last week after our last show. And I remember Giovanni Trapattoni saying when he was when it was obvious that he was going to be not going to be the manager for very much longer, saying, <laughs> you guys all think that the next guy is going to come in and pick a whole bunch of new players who I'm not picking. Well, you're wrong. And turns out he was right. Uh, this squad could have been picked by Giovanni Trapattoni, except that Joey O'Brien's in it. Mm. Uh, I don't think Trapattoni would have been picking Joey O'Brien, purely because uh, Joey O'Brien, I think, once said boo to him in a newspaper... Uh, story, and Trapattoni wasn't having any of that. Uh, and I suppose Trapattoni probably wouldn't have picked Daryl Murphy either at this stage, but he's a player who Roy Keane and Martin O'Neill seem to have a bit of regard for. But you know, you've got Simon Cox in there, you've got Connor Salmon. You've got, it's, a, it's a completely, it's really a, it's a classic Trapattoni squad. Mm. Um, yeah, it's kind of, <sighs> Were we really th- thinking that there was going to be a load of different players? Wasn't it really more that we were just hopeful that the players would play with a bit more energy and a bit more organisation, a bit more heart? I don't same, know what players, the... same players, different men. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe that is still going to happen. I mean, Stephen I mean, Ireland yeah. is, the one that, is the one that kind of oh, sticks out. Though. I mean, I, I heard this on a radio bulletin on Friday, something about how he'll go to, he's going to go to Stoke and he's going to talk to the player. Mm. I mean, Stephen Ireland... How long has he been in the job now? Since November. Yeah. Why talk to the player? Name the player, don't name the player. I mean, at the end of the day, we're not waiting on Stephen Aaron to revolutionise our chances of qualifying for the European Championships. I mean, he's just, he's not good enough to do that for us. He's not playing well enough to do that for us. So let's name him, don't name him. But the whole idea of having to go talk to him. What what are you talking to him about? Do you want to play for us or not? Name, just name him in the squad. We'll find out. And then we can put it all to bed because it is actually re- it's really annoying to even basically any Irish uh, as you say there's a total news vacuum around Irish squad announcements because we have a set number of players and they're all going to get named and so the only sort of news line out of any of it is Stephen Ireland remains outside the frame so we keep hearing about Stephen Ireland yeah even though he's does he's not going to make any material difference to our squad anyway. So let's just you know lance the boil here, please. Yeah, well that's I mean that almost that's that's almost what I'd like to see, you know, yeah. yes or no. To be honest, I think what we can, the way that I would interpret this is we're not going to be seeing much of much of that boy. Yeah. Um, uh, over the next few years, um, and I suppose a lot of people. It's not. I'm I, I, I'm sure that there are plenty of people listening to this who are going, "Why are you even talking about this? Know, Shut your mouth! Shut your mouth!" <laughs> Um, I can I can understand I can understand if people feel that way. Yeah. Uh, I just have always thought that he has got a rare talent. I think that we don't have a lot of players with his ability. I think that's still true, even though he might have made a bit of a mess of his career. Um, I mean, he's made a complete mess of it, really, when you consider where he was five you know five or six years ago. 
uh, how highly rated it was, how well he was doing in a, in a Manchester City team that was going to be the coming team in English football, you know, and, and that all went uh, went wrong and he made some bad um, career choices, I mean, including moving to Aston Villa, which was briefly managed by Martin O'Neill. I mean, I think they arrived more or less in the, the revolving door kind of way, mm. Ireland in, O'Neill out. And whether, uh, I think, I don't know if Martin O'Neill was the prime instigator of Aston Villa's swoop for Stephen Ireland on, on that occasion. I mean, I think, I think we asked him that uh, when he did his first, or one of his first press conferences as, as manager, and he, he certainly wasn't claiming credit on that occasion for having brought Stephen Ireland to Villa. Anyway, um, pretty much as you were, all, all change, but no actual change. Let's hope uh, the fire in the belly of the players has changed. Yeah. And I, I, I know you're kind of laughing behind your hand at me saying that, but that, that, I think, in fairness, that is what we were hoping for rather than an influx of new, brilliant players that uh, we never knew existed. Well, you know, I mean, there, there was also the, the whole idea of the, the um, Irish diaspora players, mm. which potentially a rich, untapped source. We've been shaking a few trees. Seemed but it seems like no, nobody wants to be Irish anymore. Yeah. What's happened here? Why Why are the, the far-flung, um, you know, members of this family of ours, this yeah. big Irish family of ours, suddenly losing interest? The why? luster of the happy shamrock is not quite as gleaming as it no, used to be. They don't seem to be answering the the sound of the pipes uh, drifting from the from the homeland. The, there doesn't seem to be a stampede for the uh, to get in, in, into Martin O'Neill and Keno's squad. Look, that could all still change. Um, we have until September yeah. for these games to actually start mattering. Yeah, uh, but we are. Uh, I mean, and it's, we are playing Portugal. I think the tenth of June. I was looking to thinking, isn't that unbelievably close to the World Cup? It's like the day before the World Cup starts, yeah. is it, or is it the day the, or two days before? I can't quite remember the date. But it's in it's the eleventh of June, and the World Cup starts on the twelfth of June. Yeah, and Portugal are in action on the like within four days of playing us. Yeah, um, I guess we'll, our instructions will be to go easy on Cristiano. Um, I mean, imagine David oh. Myler. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm not picking David Myler for any course. particular reason. Yeah. All I'm saying is David Myler inflicted an injury unintentionally yeah. on Adam Yanzai simply by virtue of being a big, powerful man whose yeah. studs came down in the wrong place as far as Yanzai was concerned. There was no malice. There was no intention on anyone's part to hurt malice anyone. Nevertheless, somebody got hurt. Can you imagine? I mean, you'd almost feel like... It'd almost be like we'd have to do a petition or, or make a video or something to send to the Portuguese MC. You know, we're sorry. It would be, it would be really bad. It would be really, really bad. <laughs> it would be the pariahs of world football. Yeah, yeah. Look, it would take be. away the jewel of world football from uh, from this the World m- Cup that he was going to win. Well, at least single handedly. Hopefully, get to play Messi at some point in the in the World Cup. Um, anyway, we are going to talk a little later about the uh, who the manager of the year should be. Uh, Manager of the Year award, a funny, a funny one, really. Never been won by a foreigner apart from Arsene Wenger. Mm. Um, Never <clears> been won by a foreigner apart from apart from Arsene Wenger. I mean, I, when I say a foreigner, what I mean is somebody who isn't from the British Isles uh, and the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. Because Joe Kinnear did win LMA Manager he of the won Year. Three of them, didn't he? In 19, no. Oh, just the one. Okay, he said sorry, that yeah. he said <laughs> he that he, said won he won three. Of them. Three. However, he, he did in fact. Win, uh, win one. Now that's just the main. That's the main um, manager of the year award, and it does seem to. They do seem to have a preference for going for the real football man type of manager. Yeah. So Tim Sherwood's in the in the running. Tim Sherwood is a real football man, but I don't know if he, if necessarily having managed Tottenham since December, would put him in the running to be the manager of the year. But I'm sure they're, they're aware. Sense. They're aware of Sherwood. I mean, when you look back at it, when when Arsene Wenger. Uh, took Arsenal to the double in 1998. Yeah, it was Dave Jones of Southampton who was <laughs> who won Manager of the Year. Um, you know, and that's the way, you know, Arsene Wenger did manage to win in 2002, 2004. Mourinho never. Um, Mourinho's never won the LMA Manager of the Year award. No, he's won it for the for the top division because they do the the actual Manager of the Year, uh, and then they do one for each division, yeah, yeah. which is obviously less prestigious. Um, Mancini didn't win it because the year that Mancini won the league, it was Alan Pardew who won Manager of the Year for taking Newcastle to fifth. Uh, so, 
so there you go. That's, that's that was that was in 2012. So uh, I guess look, <laughs> Jose Mourinho's never won this award. That's no. brilliant. No, he that hasn't. is brilliant. That's, I, I think that's kind of turned my thinking around on who I think is actually going to win it this year. So who do you think is going to win it? Well, I thought maybe winning two trophies in your first year <laughs> in a country, but you know, might get some recognition wow. for Manuel Pellegrini. Yeah, but no, it'll also be... you know behaving in a way that you know is perfectly in sync with how. You know the the English like has like he German. has he behaved like a real football man though? Well, I don't know. I don't know that he has. Yeah, I mean, sure. I've barely heard him say the word diags. He's sure. he's been second balls, courteous, dignified, mostly. I mean, yeah. he did he did uh, <laughs> you know um, really go for the referee after the Barcelona, Barcelona beat game, yeah. beat Man City in the, in the Champions League that time, and he and he had all kinds of things to say about that referee and that wasn't that wasn't nice but generally he's been this picture of, of restraint and is that what a real football man should be about mm. no I'm not sure Tony Pulis I've got a picture in my head and the picture of a real football man is Tony Pulis Tony Pulis is is, is a football man I mean he, he's at the moment talking with Palace about whether or not he's going to stay on yeah I think he's in a pretty strong bargaining position because you can see the fans of Crystal Palace who Thought they were going to get relegated this season um, until Pulis arrived, really. Um, now with the Crystal Pulis banners like this yeah. and everybody loves uh, Pulis. Uh, because maybe, to an extent, everybody's been so uh, delighted with how the team has suddenly you know, become this dogs of war, uh, you know, we'll never give an inch type of unit compared to the rabble that they were, that it hasn't yet sunk in what Tony Pulis is going to do with that team once he has a opportunity to properly Pulisize them mm. you know which is to say because yeah, like you know you, we are kind of you know there's an element of uh, looking down at Pulis's achievement because of the kind of you know manager that he is and the sort of manager speak that he comes out with but he has done a, an exceptional job with Palace absolutely exceptional yeah um, and Pulisizing a team usually in fairness means getting it to they a, won't get mid- relegated yeah getting it to a mid-table position and holding pretty firm there for yeah. a good number of years and establishing it as a Premier League force, which is pretty, which is a pretty impressive job. I yeah. think Palace will take that. And, and Pulis is his empire building because, as you know, his his hero is Napoleon. Um, yeah. He, uh, you know, and he's he's, inter- he's interested in nineteenth century warfare, imperialism, colonialism, funny hats, um, artillery manuals. From that uh, from that time, visited the battlefields in Crimea, which would have been very interesting, actually. Yeah. When you consider that this was when he was sacked by uh, Stoke, or, or left Stoke by mutual, mm-hmm. he, he actually went to the Crimea to inspect the battlefields. Which, of course, you know, he's watching the news reports at the moment um, with a lot of information. You know, he knows the terrain, the background there. Um, but Pulis, uh, he said something recently which gives you... I mean, this is an indication is of his ambition. Is he a short man, Pulis? Oh, no, no. He's, he's he, I mean, averagely tall. I mean, he's tall, but not super tall. 5'10", hmm. 5'11"? Um, no, t- I'd, say he's, I'd say he's six feet tall. You can... I mean, he... Strange kind of a guy. Like, you know... Uh, I mean, he obviously gives this impression that he doesn't care. You know, he, he's, he's uncomfortable with being praised. You can see this in interviews. He's like, oh, you've done such a great job. And he's like, oh, you know... Have I have I really, you know? But then he'll say something like, uh, who was it he was talking about? It was one of the other real football man managers. And he said, well, he's like me. He's a real football man. Uh, you know, so he'll kind of say something that way. He He's, I think, quite sensitive to, while while he appears to despise the the media and the journalists and, you know, what, what they do and all that kind of thing. And when he would come in and do a press conference, for instance, he would wear a suit. I mean, he'd change out of his track suit and baseball cap stuff. Would wear a suit, but then he wouldn't sit down. He'd stand there with his hands in his pockets, kind of fidgeting uh, and not sitting down at the table. And then he'd be off after a couple of minutes. You know, um, I know you don't want to hear any more from me. It strikes me actually he's kind of sensitive to what's said about him. You know, he wants to be like everybody does. You know, no, nobody likes to be slagged off. But he was talking about how his, his interaction with the palace chairman and how, you know, if he is going to stay, cause he's got two years left in his contract. Um, but as we know, it's a precarious job. He says, if he is going to stay, you know, we're going to need to see the club kick on. You know, there's a big opportunity there for the club. Because you know what I see around here? Chimney pots. And whenever there are chimney pots, and there are loads and loads of chimney pots around here, wherever there are chimney pots, there are people who will come and watch football, said uh, Pulis. 
which actually struck me as the kind of thing that Brendan Rodgers might say if he had been influenced by uh, British Legion 1970s sort of working man's club mm. uh, culture and frame of reference rather than 1990s to 2000s motivational and self-help videos. and Tony Robbins and that. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, chimney pots. It does kind of sound like the sort of thing that a club owner would say. Yeah. Something from like Phoenix Nights or something. Yeah, well, I've looked, you know, at, I've looked at here. There's so many chimneys. And everywhere I see a chimney pot, that's a fireplace. And where there's a fireplace, there's usually a, a family huddling around it. Yep. Uh, I don't know if that really still necessarily applies. I mean, there's a lot of people living in apartments now at Central Heating. And, you know, I mean, especially in Croydon, which is quite close to Palace's ground, you know. I mean, but look, Pulis is right. Um, and we'll talk about the uh, LMA Manager of the Year award in just a couple of minutes. Is there anything else you'd like to bring us one more story, maybe, Ken? Um yeah, look, there was, there's obviously the whole uh, Rogers stuff. Look, we'll get to that in the manager's year. You know, Liverpool's uh, getting through. Nasri probably not going to the World Cup of France. We talk about that. There was Tim Sherwood. Uh, yes. Tim Sherwood. So I've, I've got to say, I thought it was pretty good. Um, his, the way that he rounded off the season by inviting a fan who had been criticising him from um, from the stand to uh, come and take his place in the dugout. Isn't he, like, isn't he going to be looking for a job in... A week's time. Well, he is. Doesn't but like, it strike you as the sort of thing that, you know, he probably doesn't look amazing? Well, to, uh, I, I think everybody German. understands what the story, you know, Tim Sherwood is just in there as a, as a placeholder. He kind of realized that, you know, he, he originally when he when he took the job, he thought that because he'd got a year and a half contract out of Daniel Levy, that that meant he actually had a chance of being considered to be the manager for next season. But that hasn't happened. And Daniel Levy's program notes yesterday... Uh, talked about uh, how the new signings in the summer had the effect of raising expectations. We all started the season with high hopes, uh, yet the players undoubtedly needed time to adapt to a new uh, uh, league. We were also forced to make managerial changes, which is far from ideal mid-season. Forced to make managerial changes? Well, he decided to make managerial changes. I don't know what forced him. I mean, I thought he was his own Results boss. Getting hammered. Like a lot. <laughs> well, they got hammered a couple of times. You know, the results weren't actually that bad. You know, I mean, Tottenham five weren't... nils though, weren't there? I mean, well, look, I mean, well, why were Arsenal not forced to sack Arsene Wenger after they lost five one and six nil in the space of a couple of weeks to to Liverpool and Chelsea? You know, I mean, you're not forced to do anything. I mean, if you... Anyway, he says, Our sense of falling short, felt by all, including the players, is based on some poor performances during the season and knowing we haven't performed at the level we know we could have done. This is still Levy now, right? Even in games where we gain maximum points, our football was not always what we've come to expect and associate with our club. So that's like, yeah, Sherwood, I know you've got this great win record that you're always going on about. You know, win, my win percentage is up there with the best... This is the kind of thing Sherwood... I think the, he's the best manager in Spurs history, judging by going by win percentage. Uh, but Levy's making the point that, yeah, even your wins, I didn't think were any yeah, good. So you didn't like your wins. So Sherwood knows that he's gone. And then he, he had the opportunity then, I thought, quite well, to satirise the whole situation by inviting this fan, giving him his gilet, uh, the, the Tim Sherwood garment. The most famous gilet in Ever. Premier League history, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and inviting him to sit <laughs> sit on the bench, uh, seeing as this guy is such an expert, he's always telling me to do this and to do that. The guy said, it was great. It was something I won't forget. Um, to be fair to Tim, he's always happy to chat and have a laugh with us. I called a couple of subs he should make, and it just so happened he made them. If we were three nil up at the time, I thought it would be a good chance to bring some years on. He said, you know what? Why don't you come and have a go? It was surreal. I didn't know what to make of it or if I would get in trouble for going over the barrier. I'm a lifelong Spurs fan, so I'm not going to turn down the chance to sit in the hot seat. As I was walking away, he said, you can keep the jacket, and shook my hand and patted me oh, on the back. That's at odds with uh, uh, Sherwood's uh, story uh, in he, relation to the famous gilet. He later claimed that the police were looking for the guy for having nicked the gilet. Um, the, what the guy says, performances have been more exciting than under the previous manager, but he's a bit of a wide boy, and maybe he's just rubbed people up the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> Sherwood's thinking, oh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. God. Sherwood did come out with a great line in the interview with the BBC. Was it, well, I saw it on Match of the Day. It may have been with Sky, but it was different. <laughs> where the guy, you know, having told the story about how the guy's an expert, yeah, you know, he's always telling me what to do. I said, why don't you come down? And uh, the reporter said, well, where is he in the... Uh, in the betting then for the next manager and quick as a flash Sherwood goes nah he's English <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's that pretty good I'll give, I'll give Sherwood 
I'll give Sherwood credit for that. Yeah, I thought I thought it was good. One other thing that we do have to mention is Randy Lerner's announcement that he's selling Aston Villa. Um, he's put this statement out today, uh, and it's quite a strange statement in its way. I mean, he said, uh, "I've asked the world of Paul Lambert and Paul Fogner. They've they have delivered selflessly, and so on." He doesn't guarantee that Lambert's still going to have a job because new owner might sack him. Can has no control over that. But he he says. Um, the last, uh, I've come to know well that fates are fickle in the business of English football, and I feel I've pushed, pushed mine well past the limit. The last several seasons have been week-in, week-out battles, and having now come through this last season, unfortunately limping amid very meaningful injuries and constant sale rumours, I feel further that now is the time for me to look for new ownership. Didn't know Randy himself had picked up a hamstring niggle. A new leadership. On a personal level, it is time for me, like the Shunammite, to dwell among my own and get on with other aspects of my career following a sale. Okay, you're going to have to explain that one to me. That's a biblical reference. Oh, right, okay. The Old Testament, which I don't know if we pay that much attention to in this, uh, this countries of this stripe. Uh, there, are lessons, there, there are lessons there, Ken. Uh, the sure. Shunammite, uh, it turns out, was a, uh, a well-to-do woman somewhere in Israel uh, back in the day who uh, had a particular fondness for prophets who would, who would pass by, such as Elisha, um, who who she would uh, give bread to as he passed by, and eventually he he made a habit of stopping by to eat bread, whenever uh, whenever he was in town, and uh, she had a she had a wealthy husband, but he was a little bit, let's uh, let's say past his prime years. Okay. And uh, Alicia said, "You know, you've been so good to me. Is there anything I can do for you?" And she said, Go on. "And she said, well, what do you get the woman who has everything? You know, although I am childless." And Alicia said, well, I'll tell you what, you don't need to worry about that because on a given day... <laughs> put, our, put our best man on the job. <laughs> on a given day in the future, you will yeah. be with child. All and right. thus it came to pass. Thus it came to pass. But then what happened was, was quite strange. Um, the, the, the son, for it was a son, yeah. um, went when he was a little boy went one day to his father who was reaping in the fields and said, Father, I have a, my head hurts, and then fell down. Uh, they carried the boy to his mother, and, you know, he seemed to be very ill, sick unto death, I think, is the, is yeah. the thing. and in fact, did die. So then the, the Shunammite went to Elisha and said, uh, unfortunately, my son has, has met with a, a tragic end. Yeah. Elisha came back with her, lay down on top of the sun for a few minutes, got up, paced around the room, and then lay down on top of the sun again. The sun sneezed seven times and was right as rain. Okay. Is this sort of crack? Is this, is this regular in the Old Testament? Yeah. I haven't, uh, I haven't looked at the Old Testament in a long yeah, time. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of stuff like that that goes on in there. I mean, Chinese whispers, possibly. Yeah. Over the thousands of years. Um, but one way or the other, things worked out well for everybody. Mm. And, and uh, the Shun- incidentally, none of that applies to why Randy Leonard brought up the, the subject of the Shunammite in this particular context. Um, <clears throat> I believe that later, Elisha got word that there was going to be a, some kind of a plague or you know, a God-sent retribution upon, upon the land of Israel. So naturally, he quickly tipped off the people that he knew, including the Shunammite, um, who was, he, he obviously was friendly with. And he said, you might want to get out of Israel for the next seven years or so because I, I understand that there's going to be a, a great plague, fire of God or whatever it is. So you don't want, you don't want to be here, is all I'm saying. And so the Shunammite went away um, and then returned to live once again among her people. And I think that's what Randy Lerner... Okay. Well, that seems to be what he's saying. You've actually bored your background music into submission there, Ken, so congratulations. That's the end of your report on sport. Hairdryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, no, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. I want the flights, the hotel, some flattering new bikinis, a big silly hat, and nice dinners in local restaurants with cute waiters. And I want... No, I have to be beach ready. 
so I need to be a regular saver. KBC understands spending is easy, but saving is hard. That's why we have a range of savings options with tempting rates that make savings simple. So you can save when you want and spend when you want. Visit kbc.ie, call 1-800-5152-53 or pop into any KBC hub in Dublin, Cork, Limerick and Galway. KBC, the bank of you. Terms and conditions apply. KBC Bank Ireland PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All right, we're joined now by John Bruin of ESPN and uh, by Jonathan Wilson. I'll start with you, John. Man City are the champions. And afterwards, Vincent Company said that this team has a real soul. Is there growing evidence uh, of that now, John? Well, I think there's certainly a togetherness among the team, the squad, this season that there wasn't last season. I think, well, there's plenty of stories about what went wrong with Roberto Mancini. Um, and remember a year ago, we, we giggled at um, City's press statement saying that they wanted a holistic approach. And uh, But it has to be said, Manuel Pellegrini has met that uh, dicta, I suppose, because it seems a together squad and Pellegrini has to take great credit for that. I think part of the, part of the thing behind that is he's worked very well with the South American players in particular and has gelled a, a team unit, whereas I think there were disparate units under Mancini, and Mancini wasn't the type of manager who would seek to bring people together and work together. Um, you know, dispute was part of the job as far as he was concerned. He, 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 you know, he lived off that. Pellegrini's a very different guy, and uh, the results are much better. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan, it does look like, uh, considering the size of the squad and the number of quality players that are in there, it looks like quite a, a settled kind of a camp. You know, there, there don't seem to be problems in there. So you would you would expect that this Manchester City squad, with I'm, I'm assuming a signing or two for next season, are going to be strong again next season. Can the same be said of the team that have finished second? I mean, all the talk at Anfield yesterday was, was of uh, regret and, and disappointment. Um, but also Brendan Rodgers trying to be optimistic. Uh, talked about how he intends to challenge for the for the title next season. Do you think they can? I think they can. I mean, yeah, he, he was pointing out a lot of these players are very young. They they're not experienced in a title race, uh, and so logically, you would think they they will be better next season. After the Palace game, he spoke about game management, uh, and I think that is something you you learn. So, from that point of view, then yeah, they they, they could be better next season. I think there's a big issue over whether Luis Suarez stays. Um, which yeah, I think is far from certain. Um, and and then I think you've got to bear in mind they've been quite fortunate in some ways with injuries. They, they haven't had an injury to Suarez or not not extended injury to Sturridge. Gerrard's played most of the season. So are they going to have that luck again? Can they um, bring in the three or four players to bring the squad up to, to speed? And then you've got the issue of the defence. I mean, conceding 50 goals in a season does not win you titles. Uh, I think if you look in the last 10 years, or even since the Premier League began, the, the median position for teams with 50 points is between 6 and 8. So I can see 50 goals between 6 and 8. So they've got to sort that out. Now, is that an issue of personnel, or is it just the way they play? In terms of the uh, manager of the year, I mean, Rodgers is, is one of the guys who's tipped to win that. It doesn't have to be Premier League manager, we know that. But let's stick to the to the Premier League managers uh, for the purposes of this conversation. Uh, Brendan Rodgers, uh, I guess, is, is one of the favourites. 101 goals scored. Um, Liverpool finishing second, far above expectations. Uh, would you? Uh, it would, has he, in your estimation, Jonathan, done enough to, to win it this time? Yeah, so I certainly wouldn't have any complaints if he won it. I mean, I think this award. Yeah, I, I'm. I don't really see the point of individual awards. I've, you know, I've said this before, so I won't bang on about that. Even for even for a manager, even for even for managers, it shouldn't though, just necessarily go to ever win the league. It should go to the manager who's perform most of our expectations. He's got his squad to do greater things than we expected. And given Liverpool finished seventh last season, given that sort of I think the sum of the most of those realistic ambitions then was to qualify for the Champions League, well he, he has exceeded that. And so from that point of view he, he clearly is a very strong candidate. Having said that and having said that it shouldn't necessarily go to have a winter league, I think Pellegrini's had a great year, two trophies in his first season, the oldest deputant manager to, to win the Premier League I was like the old the old managers to win Premier League for the first time since Joe Fagan in 1984, and he'd been at Liverpool for 28 years. It's a slightly different situation. So you've got to give Pellegrini credit for the way he's adapted. And then looking lower down the leagues, I guess you look at Tony Poulos, who took over the Palace side, who um, I think they were on seven points in each over, and everybody thought they were doomed. And 
yeah, they end up uh, surviving quite comfortably. And maybe even Gus Poyer taking Sunderland to a Capital One Cup final and the preposterous salvation they had. Although, I'm slightly, my, my doubt about Poyet is if they got those results in a different order, would we say it was a great season or would we just thought that was quite normal? Well, you haven't mentioned, you haven't actually even mentioned the guy who I think should be the manager of the year, but I'm going to ask John what he makes of that. What about you, John Rogers? I mean, it seems almost to be controversial uh, if you were to suggest that you don't think Rogers deserves to win it, although I don't know how many people were touting Kevin Keegan to win uh, this award in 1996. Uh, it turned out to be Alex Ferguson that time. What do you make of the sort of Rogers Pellegrini question? Well, I, I, I tend to agree with Jonathan in that, you know, the, the Manager of the Year Award, uh, it, it does remind me of the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Award. It's 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 a frippery. But having said that, I think Rogers ultimately didn't win the title, probably because of his own misjudgment of two key matches. Um, he's the manager of the team that fell apart. Therefore, he probably does not deserve to be Manager of the Year. Now, we could say that Pellegrini deserves to be manager of the year because of his achievements. He's won two trophies. Um, I'm more inclined to sort of drop further down, look at the job that Tony Pulis did, Gus Poyet, as Jonathan was always going to mention. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Rogers, he was the candidate three weeks ago when we thought Liverpool were going to win the league, the, you know, the, the absolute market leader, if such a thing existed. But ultimately, his management probably cost his club the title. Is the problem that Manuel Pellegrini has? I mean, because he's the guy who's won the trophies and two trophies in his first season in English football. Uh, essentially, did the widespread impression that everybody kind of thinks they could do his job. Yeah, I think I think there's a little bit of that. But um, look at the managers that have been through Manchester City. I mean, Mark Hughes, um, his reputation suffered quite a lot. I mean, he did a, a reasonable job, but not enough of a job. Uh, Mancini failed to get them into the Champions League when spending money uh, the, the like of which had never been seen before. I mean, just Pellegrini's has done, you know, he's done a great job. He's won, he's won the title in his first season. He's, you know, he's become the first South American manager to win the title. He's, uh, I think, one of the first managers to win, uh, to, to go into a European league in over 60 and, and pull off such an achievement. His achievements are great. The resources he has, obviously, uh, are pretty much unmatched across the, the division, but You've got to say, he's done a fantastic job. And if he won the award, very few people could begrudge him, though I'm sure some might find a, a reason to do so. Uh, yeah, I just find it kind of interesting, though, that uh, it's you're, you're uh, actually viewing or judging managers on totally different sets of circumstances. For instance, one of Pellegrini's really vital players in the first part of the, the league, Negredo, had a dip in form. And all Pellegrini had to do was look down the bench, say, OK, and Dzeko, and on you go. And he ends up scoring 16 or 17 league goals and winning wins him vital games in the championship run-in. I mean, you have to take into account the resources that he has uh, uh, at his disposal. And it's a to- and how you even go about judging that up against what Tony Pulis had to do uh, strikes maybe at the, the, the fallacy at the, behind the whole Manager of the Year award. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. I, I think it's actually a crucial point about managers that some of them are good at managing a massive budget and big egos and shuffling a squad around. Some of them are good lower down the league and, and the skills aren't necessarily transferable. So I remember talking to a, a former director at City and him saying that one of the mistakes they made, I think it was with Joe Royal, when they got promoted, he said they should have sacked him immediately because they sort of knew in their heart of hearts he wasn't going to be able to kick them on. He was, as this director put it, he was a very good manager of a corner shop, but you don't want to put him in charge of a multinational. Now, maybe that's not, not fair on Joe Royal, but I think the general principle is, is true that being able to handle a Champions League club and the challenges that presents are very, very different to keeping Palace or Sunderland in the Premier League. Uh, and, and maybe we expect those skills to be more transferable than they really are. What about the, the job that Tony Pulis did then, John? Because, I mean... Um... According to Brendan Rodgers, anybody could t- teach a team to sit back and defend. And that's really the big improvement that Tony Pulis made uh, at Crystal Palace. I mean, uh, within a few games of his uh, of his arriving, they were defending with a kind of determination and tenacity that certainly seemed beyond them when uh, Ian Holloway was the manager. Um, how highly do you rate that achievement? I rate it very highly indeed. Um, if you saw Palace in those early weeks of the season, they were completely lost and 
the greater part of that actually does have to go down to the manager Ian Holloway, who'd completely lost interest in doing the job, it seemed, uh, and eventually resigned, having offered to do so a couple of times, I believe. Now, when Pulis arrived, there was some dispute over what type of manager he'd been. I mean, Stoke City, they spent a lot of money and never really pushed on from staying up comfortably and never sort of, you know, pushed towards European uh, qualification. Though They did make an FA Cup final. But I think uh, in Pulis, and there's, he's probably the best organiser of, let's call them limited players in the game. And that team swiftly gained an organisation that very few other teams have. Now, Brendan Rogers' comment about defence, I think, was, you know, it, it was sourness delivered uh, in the moment of defeat against Chelsea, wasn't it, that one? But um, Pulis, let's, well, let, let's talk about the game between Crystal Palace and Liverpool. Didn't Crystal Palace attack very well? They, uh, they have improved as an attacking force since Pulis has gone there. They're very well drilled in defence, where they break very well. Um, and, you know, in with players like Dwight Gale, they have players that can turn a game. So I think Pulis as a one-dimensional manager was always a limited view. I think a lot of that's to do with the fact that he was manager of Stoke City, a, you know, a club with a, with a sort of a reputation for itself, shall we say. Um, he's a fine manager, uh, never been relegated in his career. Um, Palace made the right choice. And at that point, you probably have to credit the chairman, uh, Steve Parrish, for, for making that decision. Jonathan, I mentioned earlier that you hadn't uh, made any mention of the guy who I think has done the best job in the league this season, who's Roberto Martinez at Everton. I mean, he comes in, he succeeds a, a club legend, which, as we've seen this season, isn't always the uh, most, isn't always the easiest thing uh, in management. He leads them to their highest ever points tally while turning them into a team that everybody wants to watch. Uh, and he does all this while making money on transfers. I mean, as far as I can see, he's kind of ticked every box. Yeah, I mean, I think they're now nine points more this season than last season. Uh, I guess the the reason that he doesn't stand out is that they've only moved actually moved up one place, I think, or maybe two places. It's not as eye catching as, as some of the other achievements, but but yeah, I, I think he, he certainly should be on the shortlist. Whether taking up a mid-table club and making them slightly more of a mid-table makes you manager of the year. I'm, I'm, I'm less certain, but he, he's done a very, very fine job. And I guess the issue now is, can they actually push that a little bit further and, and, and genuinely challenge for the Champions League rather than that sort of falling away and obviously for the end of the season? So who would you uh, go for ultimately, Jonathan? Pulis. Pulis and John? I'm going for Pulis as well. Tony Pulis it is. Thanks very much for joining us. Cheers, thank you. A unanimous vote for Tony Pulis there. Uh, Ken, no one really cares about the Manager of the Year award, though. Really, do, although, I, although actually, I, I correct myself there immediately. Tony Pulis would care about the LMA Manager of the Year award quite a bit, I would have thought. Yeah, uh, I think the managers probably care about it. Um, it's always nice to be recognised by your peers. Um, and I suppose fans of, of clubs see it as a uh, tacit sort of award for their club, you know, if the manager does... Does well and not a, be a sign that the club has done well. Not a massive amount of love for uh, your choice of Roberto Martinez, mm. and I saw that you were getting quite a bit of abuse on Twitter as well last night, for suggesting that. Well, that was that was the... simply because simply because I hadn't ranked Brendan Rodgers among the the top three, um, you know, and and that's uh, that seems, seems to be a bit of a sore point, um, sore point, which isn't to say I wouldn't rank Brendan Rodgers in the top half. Or top quarter of managers in the league this okay, year. Top quarter is top five. I'd say I'd say definitely the top quarter, and I think that's a pretty good. It's a pretty good performance. Okay, who would be fourth if Brendan Rodgers was fifth? Are you saying he's fifth, or who would fill out the top five there? Basically, Steve Bruce maybe. Managing to avoid relegation and cup Doing, final. I think putting together a decent team. I mean, which really only took shape in the second half of the season. They're in the cup final against Arsenal. I expect them to lose. Um, because they're going to have to play it without Jelovic, without Long. And I think they're really a different team with those players. Um, and maybe they would have had a chance against Arsenal. But I think the way that Arsenal are going now, especially with Ramsey playing well, I think they're going to win that comfortably. Yeah, we'll talk about uh, the La Liga finale. We'll talk about La Liga on Thursday's show, but the, the, the Barcelona-Atletico Madrid uh, finale, last game of the season, is actually on at the same time as the FA Cup final. And... Uh, mm. The English FA probably don't 
you know, n- n- they would blanch at the idea that any of their fans would be, you know, distracted Everyone's going to be saying, well, you know, we don't want to watch this. I mean, you know, Arsenal fans, whole City fans are going to be watching it. But, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be more interested in watching yeah. Barcelona against Atletico. Pure, so. uh, maybe because the Arsenal home match is seen as being a little bit of a, a mismatch. Maybe... Maybe there's the sense that Arsenal would, would, would win too easy. Obviously, there's a chance that Arsenal might do what they did against Birmingham City a couple yeah. of years ago. I would say it's a distinct possibility. Yeah. Honest, but uh, but I, it's more to do with the Spanish um, FA. You know, they've, they're the ones who've... I mean, it's not like they're unaware of the FA Cup final being on yeah. at the same time, but they've decided to schedule that match uh, to coincide with it. I think in an attempt to see if they can, uh, if they can get more viewers, mm. which, which would be a big... Well, I mean, if you're interested in this type of thing, <laughs> which not that many people are, it would be a big uh, deal for Spanish football if they could say, "Well, our you know our uh, league insider you know just handed the FA Cup final." It's well, one. yeah. Uh, well, we'll move on because we've uh, Philippe Oclair on the line to talk to us a little about Samir Nazari. Philippe, he says he's going to watch the World Cup on TV. This has probably been his best season in English football so far. Uh, one of the main players in the team that's just won the league. So, why do France feel they can do without him for uh, this summer's World Cup? Well, it has to do with Samir Nasri's past with the French national team. got nothing to do with his talent. It's got nothing to do uh, with the season he's had, which, as you might say, is probably the best he's ever had at any club. Um, when you listen to what Samir said uh, last night to Canal Plus, what is really striking is the tone in which he, he said that, because you could have imagined him saying, well, I'll be watching it in front of the television, expressing some regret, but it was actually quite aggressive the way he went about it. And obviously, um, it was not an, an operation of communication so directed at the Didier Deschamps saying, uh, uh, I'm going to express my regret and say how sorry I, I am and so forth, and maybe he can think again. It really sounded as if he knew that he wouldn't be in the, in the list of 23. Um, it has to do with the fact that Samir Nasri perhaps... Um, was not amongst the people who played the defining game of Deschamps' uh, reign, which was the 3-0 victory against Ukraine. If you remember in the playoffs, Nasri was part of that team, which got beaten in, in Kiev, and he was, as were all the other players in that team, very poor that night. Um, whereas, when it came to the Stade de France and the return game, um, he wasn't in the team, the team did extremely well, qualify and so forth, and Didier Deschamps is thinking, well, I should stick to the guys who have shown up, turned up when it was really necessary. Uh, there's, there are a number of people in France who believe that Samir Nasri is a disrupting influence in the dressing room, that he doesn't count many friends in there. Um, so the reasons are purely, uh, are purely to do with the idea that uh, the Deschamps wants as united, as strong uh, a group as possible, not unlike perhaps um, what Emile Jacquet did with the 1996 and the 1998 World Cup squads, where when some players were left uh, on the side, who probably on, on talent alone and performance alone should have been included, but Jacquet thought, no, the unity of the group is far more important. And I think Deschamps is taking a leaf of his old manager here. It seems there might be some double standards at work here, Philippe, because as, yeah. far, as far as I can see, Patrice Evra, who led a mini-revolution the last time France played in the World Cup, is, is going to be going to Brazil. Uh, and Samir Nasri, who was watching that World Cup on television as well, <laughs> is not going to be in there. Now, you know, we've heard stories previously about Nasri. Maybe there are certain footballer cliche aspects of his life which are easy to deride. He's, he's obviously had little feuds with specific uh, media reporters uh, in yeah. France, and, and there's all these things. But what's he actually done that's disruptive? I mean, there was a story, I think, years ago about him sitting on uh, Thierry Henry's seat on the bus or something. I mean, that can't be... There must be more to his rap sheet than that if he's going to get left out again. Yeah, the famous uh, application with William Gallas. Uh, I don't think that's the reason he's not going to go to Brazil. And you're quite right to talk about Patrice Evra because, again, people are making exactly the same parallel in France. They're saying, well, you know, if you judge uh, the player by... Um, well, and, his past crimes, if crime is the word. Uh, Patrice Evra was, was the leader of a rebellion, or one of the leaders of a rebellion. The word is that um, Samir Nasri's relationship with a number of senior players within Deschamps' squad is so uh, fraught that it is those senior players who have said, um, Coach, we don't want this guy with us. We well, really don't want him. Why, though? And what's so what's <sighs> unpleasant about Samir Nasri? Manchester City players seem to, seem to regard him quite yeah. well. 
I know. I, I, in fairness, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm not in the secret of the gods, and it, perhaps it can be that. Well, Samenazri has a tendency to sit on his own. He has. Um, he's a very quiet man within the French camp uh, when he when he was with the, with the French team. Um, obviously, his behavior he can be uh, thought of as arrogant uh, by some, uh, big-headed, and so forth, which doesn't go down with some of the players. Uh, obviously, some some things must have happened, but nothing has filtered as to exactly what the events are. Perhaps it is just a question simply of characters who, which are so opposed uh, that you know they, they can't be in the same room, basically. And uh, it, it's really odd, I must say. It, it, the more we think about it, the more absurd the whole situation seems to be, because it's not as if we had within the French squad players who have anything like the invention. Uh, uh, that Samia Nasri had all the technical ability and also the scoring ability from that type of position. Uh, one thing, one argument perhaps, which could be used is that the kind of system that um, uh, Deschamps uses, which has got definitely three midfielders, whether you call it a 4 3 3 or 4 3 2 1, uh, doesn't matter really. But you've got, you know, Pogba, Matuidi, and Kabai. Uh, provided he's um, recovered from uh, an ankle injury, uh, which is suffered with PSG, which seems to be the case. Uh, these guys are, are basically shoe-ins. And then afterwards, you're left with three attacking players. So where do you put Nazrin there? If you put Benzema uh, on, on, you know, ahead as the number nine, if you put Ribéry, who has had an awful end of the season with Bayern on the left-hand side, and another player whose behavior has not exactly been impeccable in the past with the, with the national team and outside of the national team, and then Valbuena on the right, and you're thinking, well, where do I put Samir? And um, which is must be part of of Deschamps' thinking. But on the other hand, even if you use that, um, why not take him and use it as a as an impact sub, or at least have somebody who can enable you to change the, the tactical shape of your team and have a real, you know, ha- have a real impact on the way the team is performing. And surely Samir Nasri can do all that. And we were speaking last week uh, about Brazil's World Cup squad, and the interesting thing about it is it features quite a few players who aren't playing that well for their clubs in Europe, at least compared to some other mm. players who, who haven't made the squad um, in terms of European football. But obviously, Philippe Scolari feels that it's a completely different context. When you come to the national team, effectively, you're a different player. Um, are France maybe hoping that the same rule is going to apply to, to Frank Ribery, who, who, as you mentioned, uh, hasn't been particularly good for Bayern, certainly not compared to his own form for Bayern over the previous few years. Uh, are there any theories as to what's happening with Ribéry? Is there, is there confidence that he'll be um, the old Ribéry that France have been reliant on uh, come come next month? I think Deschamps' thinking will be that Ribéry has been probably, um, since he, he took over from Laurent Blanc, uh, the most consistent of his players, certainly in an, in an attacking position, He's contributed more goals and more assists than anybody else. Uh, he seems to have uh, reformed uh, his character when it comes to relationships within the squad. He was somebody who could be very, very disruptive, certainly was in, uh, in 2010. Um, he seems to have had a good look at himself and decided, well, I want, I want to behave in a different fashion and I really want to commit myself to, uh, to the national team uh, as best as I can. And Deschamps obviously has been... Uh, well, uh, has been comforted in that by simply by the, the quality of the performances Ribéry has put uh, for the French team. So I would imagine he will just say, well, uh, what happened uh, with him uh, at Bayern was only a slight dip in form and once he's with the, within the French national team, where he's obviously the main creative asset with Karim Benzema, uh, it will be a different story um, altogether. Um, but again, you know, they, they, there are question marks about a number of, of players in that French in that French team. You don't know what what to think, quite what to think. You know, you wonder: is it on paper it looks pretty good, but it is very unbalanced. Um, so it seems, you know, from from the outside, when you look at the players, you will probably take and and there are some players there. You know, when you think that Sissoko is going to make the team and not Nasri, you're thinking, well, there's something which is not quite right in there. Well, we look forward to following the fortunes of this French team with you, Philippe, over the next few weeks. But uh, for now, thanks a million for joining us today. Thank you. Not mixing well with others is a concern for the parents of toddlers, I would have thought. Mm. Not so much for international football managers. 
Yeah. Well, Squad suppose, Harmony, though, I suppose, is that? They've, they've, they have had problems with this. I mean, as Philippe was saying there, you know. Uh, although, in, in the last few tournaments, a lot of it seemed to stem from the manager. I mean, not, not particularly Laurent Blanc. I mean, Laurent Blanc was, uh, you know, France didn't do particularly well in Euro 2012. They, they got to the quarterfinal and then went out in a very boring game against Spain. But, well, uh, I, I delivered a very flat performance, I should mm-hmm. say. It's, it's, you know, can you say Spain's, it was a boring game against Spain? Spain were just way too good for France and it was a bit of a boring game because France weren't capable of providing any any contest that was that was slightly dull. Um, but previously, it was Raymond Dominic. Was that the? I mean, the squad actually seemed to get on together quite well. Uh, their main problem was ignoring the the manager. The manager, yeah. Um, I think that's pretty much us, Ken. Uh, uh, the, the, no, sorry. It did. At twenty ten, they had a big problem with Johan Gurkuf. Gurkuf was the player who seemed to have fallen out with a number of the guys like Ribery and. You know, it, it was difficult to say exactly what was going on there, but I do see that Jan Gorkuf doesn't seem to be really in the conversation this time around. Yeah, well, uh, that's pretty much us, Ken. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, don't forget, you can listen to us on our page, that's irishtimes.com forward slash second captains, and on all the uh, usual ways for you to listen to us, about whether that's iTunes, the Stitcher app, uh, or the IPP app if you're on Android. Email us at secondcaptains at irishtimes.com uh, and uh, if you like, you can contact us on Twitter at secondcaptains. So I'll chat you all later in the week. Have a good one. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. 